You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, now kids, you can go. Uh, while they're going, uh, we, uh, we do have uh, just a couple of uh, regular things. Um, one is, remember that the youth uh, meet on Wednesday nights. Uh, so if you have a junior high or high school age kid that you want to come uh, here, normally they meet here and, uh, and they study the word together, please make no mistake, it's not uh, just a teenage social club where no drinking or drugs are being uh, abused. Uh, it's much more than that. It's actually meant to be uh, an aid in discipleship as we, we know that you uh, believing parents are seeking to disciple your children. Uh, Nick Lee, who oversees that ministry, and, and Matt, our pastor of worship, uh, comes alongside them in that. Uh, they're really seeking to aid and help you in that process. Uh, so that's what those Wednesday nights are about. And, uh, and that'll be up here. I think 6.30 is what's normal for that. Um, we do have uh, one particular announcement that we want to uh, just continue to make you aware of, which is our need for volunteers in the kids' ministry. Uh, you saw all those little kids who ran out the back. Some of them may have been yours. Um, again, what we're not trying to do there is just kind of give parents a break. Uh, we're not trying to run a daycare back there. Uh, what we're trying to do is provide something that comes alongside parents and offers as a discipleship tool so that they're learning things there while you're learning in here and, and they can come to you with materials that they've been given, with teaching that they've been offered uh, by some, some people who are just us, it's just in the family. We don't hire anybody out for that. This is a family thing. And, um, and that they can actually bring something to you and say, this is what I learned today, and you can pick the ball up from there and keep on moving the ball down the field with them in that effort of discipleship. So for some of you, you like to keep your kids in here, and that's great, totally fine. Uh, but as a whole family, this is something that we offer for our families as a discipleship tool. So if you're not volunteering back there, um, then I would ask you and encourage you to do it. Uh, I, and I'm not just saying that as somebody who never has to do it because my job precludes me from it, and yet I'm super passionate about it and want you to do it. I know that's a long quote. Uh, I, I do it. I, I serve with my wife, serve the kids, uh, and it's a great, exciting, fun thing to do, and you know that you're building the word into kids while you do it. So um, you, can, you can find out how to volunteer for that on the church's website, or you can just find uh, Holly Baker, who is either in the room or she's back there working now, as she usually is. She's in the back. Uh, so you can find Holly. If you don't know who Holly is, then just ask a couple of people and somebody will know and point you to her. So, all right, that's what's going on. Um, for the rest of our time, we're going to be back in Genesis, continuing our series. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to be in verses 10 through 20. I know we've had some really long passages of Scripture that we've preached over the last couple of months. Uh, this one is a little bit shorter. Again, what we're trying to do is not divide up the text in an unnatural way, but wherever it tells kind of a long story, we're going to tell a long story. If that means 10 or 12 minutes of reading, then that's fine. 
um, and because the Bible has much better things to say uh, about itself than we have to say about it, so it's fine to just read. Uh, sometimes, though, the passages are a little shorter. Uh, there's a, a kind of a snippet of the story that we can take out, extract, and, uh, and digest. So that's a little bit how it is this morning. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, we're going to go through the end of the chapter. And just as we normally do, I'll read it out loud if you'd follow along. And then we'll stop and ask the Lord for some help. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That is, Abram had those things. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Lord, as we settle in here in your word, in this particular passage that you've brought us to, we ask, Lord, some of us freely and joyfully Submissively, some of us maybe begrudgingly, maybe reluctantly, ask you, will you please teach us? Will you please bring us to a place of faith and obedience and love for you? Would you please put in our hearts belief and would you encourage and fan that belief into a roaring flame so that whatever your word says this morning, we would truly all freely and joyfully and submissively submit ourselves to. We know that your word is powerful, that it is yours, and that you send it out to accomplish purposes and that it never returns without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it. So we only ask this morning just a couple of things from you, God. Will you allow your purposes to be fulfilled in us as we learn from your word? And would you have your word change us, transform us, shape us, so that we would be more like Jesus in our character in our desires, in our hopes for his glory, for his kingdom, 
than we were when we walked in this morning? And would you have yourself, not any person, would you have yourself be magnified in our view? Would you overtake our perspective? Would you rule our perspective this morning? We need this from you. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, as we read through Genesis, we, um, we come to some points where uh, normally the points that we remember and we're more familiar with where some kind of heroes of the faith or heroes of the scriptures do something really heroic, something really faithful, and we're like, ah, man, I want to be like him or I want to be like her, and, and this is not one of those times. Uh, we also often, almost nearly as often, come to places in the scriptures and in Genesis in particular where we see the heroes of the faith those men and women that we look to as examples and we want to follow in their footsteps of people who walked with God and were used by God, we see them stumbling. We see them failing. We see them losing faith. And this is one of those times. So uh, the easier thing to do is to read these passages where our heroes are being heroic, and then when we see our heroes failing, we kind of sweep that failure under the rug, and we just keep on reading, and we go, okay, there are things not to do, and then we keep on reading, and we look for stuff that we are supposed to do. That's much easier. It's much easier to read the Bible that way, to teach the Bible that way, uh, but here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to sweep any of the scriptures under the rugs because they're uneasy, because they're hard for us to come to grips with, hard for us to understand, hard for us to stomach. We don't ever want to make a habit of reading the Bible that way, studying that way, uh, learning that way. So we're not going to do that here. And here's what we're hoping the trickle-down effect is in that philosophy of taking all of the scriptures into account, learning from all of it. What we're hoping the trickle-down effect is when you go home and you read your Bible, that you don't just, mm, uncomfortable. Okay, Genesis chapter 13. Let's see what happens here. But that you'll take that, you'll learn from that, you'll put yourself in the proper place in the story, which is always the humbled figure, always the one who's in need of God's mercy, not the hero, never in the place of God, but that we'll remember who we are, where we fit into the story, and that that's good for us. It's, it's good for us, it humbles us, it teaches us, it reminds us of God's majesty, his power, and his grace, as we're going to see this morning. So there's the hope. That's what we're aiming for this morning, uh, as always. So here in this part of the text, to, to catch you up to it, uh, a man named Abram has been called out of a very spiritually dark place called Ur. And Ur is where the Chaldeans lived. This is about 2,000 years before Christ came into the world. So this is way ancient history. And, and Abram was called out by God kind of suddenly, kind of out of the blue, maybe literally, he was looking at the sky and this voice was coming. And he said, this is the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now we know, living on this side of history, that what Abram was being told there was the gospel. This is the way Paul translated in Galatians, that God preached the gospel to Abram by saying these things to him, that he was going to establish a kingdom and a people for himself on this planet, and that it was going to start with Abram, that there was going to be blessing for him, there was going to be curse for those who opposed him, opposed this gospel, this kingdom being established in the world through him. And so Abram, as a person who believed God, followed him into this kind of unknown territory, and he made, started making his way towards Canaan. We don't ever see that Abram actually was told by God, head to Canaan. In fact, we have more saying, and, and Paul again saying, later in the scriptures, that Abram did not know where he was going when he started his journey to follow God. It was completely an act of faith, blind faith. But he went, as you can see in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. His nephew went with him. His wife went with him. They had no children at the time, which is part of the miraculous nature of this promise, this covenant that God made with Abram, and he's going to affirm and confirm over and over again, is that Abram had no children. He was an older guy. His wife was an older woman, although apparently still very beautiful. They had no children, so for God to tell them, I'm going to make a great nation from you, from your descendants, you can imagine the natural response would have been for Abram to go like, my descendants? I think you're putting the cart before the horse a little bit here, Lord. And yet God just says these things very directly with no qualification, no exceptions. I mean, unless you can't figure out the whole have a kid thing and then we'll adjust. God didn't do any of that. He just said, this is what I'm going to do with you. And Abram went. Now Abram is making his way. He came to the land of Canaan. You can see in verse 5, Abram passed, this is verse 6 now, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. In other words, it was hostile territory. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So now Abram has unknowingly entered into the land that God was going to give him. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. He set up camp with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So now he's in this place. He's in Canaan. He's settling in, but he's a nomadic kind of figure. He's, he's moving around, living in tents. And you again, you see later on in Paul's understanding of everything that happened. Even in the promised land, Abram lived like a sojourner, lived like an exile, moving around in his tents with his herds and his family. And then we come here to verse 10. There was famine in Canaan that caused Abram to look for help in Egypt. And this was not uncommon. Egypt, of course, being right there on the Nile in, in Northeast Africa, uh, the Nile provided nourishment for the land. So anytime there was famine anywhere in the Middle East or North Africa, people would always journey towards Egypt. It wasn't even that they were necessarily friendly with Egypt or wanted to stay in Egypt, but they knew there was always going to be some food in Egypt. So they would go there in hopes of surviving the famine. And we know here from the text that the famine was severe at the end of verse 10. 
So I want you to notice here, in the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go. And then the Lord appeared to him later and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. In other words, this is your spot. This is where I was leading you. Make your home here. The Lord said to this to him. The Lord appeared to him and said this to him. Now here, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. But there's no mention that God said, go to Egypt. Now, we don't want to always be arguing from silence in the scriptures. That's a really dangerous way to interpret or to theologize, to say, well, the Bible doesn't say this, so it must be that. That's, that's dangerous. We would rather go with what the Bible does say and build our doctrine on that. But here we have the Lord appearing to him. We have the Lord speaking to him. And everywhere the Lord tells him to go, or what the Lord tells him to do, he does it. And now we don't have the Lord appearing to him or speaking to him and telling him, go to Egypt to save your family. He just goes. And now we wouldn't, again, we don't want to argue from silence. So we normally wouldn't make a big deal of something like that. But there's more contextual evidence that tells us this was not really being done in a way that meant Abram was following God to Egypt, okay? So just keep reading and, and you'll figure that out. But I think we also have to say this was never meant to be a permanent move. He was sojourning to Egypt because of the famine. So I don't want you to read this text and see that Abram is somehow bailing out on God's plan or he doesn't believe that God is going to make him a nation or give him offspring or give him the land that he appeared to him and said he was going to give him. It's not that Abram is saying like, you know what, forget this whole promise from God thing. Let's go to Egypt. He's scared. He's running to Egypt because he's scared. So he did something out of his fear that just made sense at the time. Can you relate to that? It just made sense at the time. When he looked around, he looked at his circumstances, he's got all these people who are dependent on him. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of animals. And there, there could be even some sense in Abram, some feeling that God has promised all this stuff. And now here are all these people who are depending on me. I've taken them done this long journey to this foreign place that's inhabited by foreign hostile people. We're living in tents. We're just trying to make, and now here we are about to starve. I have to do something here to preserve this promise that God has made to us. Do you ever get that weird kind of hybrid flesh, hybrid spiritual motivation in you? where you feel that there's something the Lord wants you to do or something that would be really good for the Lord's name, but you have to kind of get to it in a creepy way, a sneaky kind of way that feels like it's from your flesh. Like you have, you have to do some stuff that you know God wouldn't necessarily approve of, but you're just like, well, look, in the big picture, it's going to turn out for God. This is the kind of thing that I think is happening here in Abram's heart where he's, he's just trying to survive, trying to see another day so that he can realize the things that God has promised to him. And now here's where we come to the point where we, that contextual evidence where we can see, okay, we don't want to argue from silence. God didn't, you know, in the scriptures, command him to go to Egypt, so it must have been wrong. What we're doing here is, is realizing that the way in which Abram went about 
sojourning in Egypt was obviously not from faith in God, right? So keep on reading. Look at what he says in verse 11 to his wife. When he was about to enter Egypt, so he's already on the way, he's been concocting this plan on the way, thinking he's really smart. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, which is just always a good thing to say to your wife, but this was creepy. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. All right, so he's really, do you ever get in this kind of mindset where you're like, I know exactly what's going to happen here. They're going to see this, they're going to think that, and then I'm dead. I don't know if you ever have thoughts like that, but I have trains of thought where later on I look back like, how did I connect those dots? But there's actually some viability to what he's saying here. Apparently, Sarai was famously beautiful. And if Pharaoh saw her and wanted her, it would be easy enough for Pharaoh to just be like, get rid of the dude that came here with her. I want it. It'd be easy enough. He's Pharaoh. He's king of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the earth at this time. He can do what he wants, how he wants, with whomever he wants, at whatever cost to them. So Abram is actually not thinking super illogically here. He's just afraid of some potential danger. So he tells her, say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now this mindset right here, this is where the rub is in the text, where all the friction is with Abram in this text. And we, I think you can find yourself here in this friction if you're willing to do so, that God has said, I've got some plans for you. And then you look at your life and go, I'm not sure it's going to work out. Like God has promised to make a great nation of me and my offspring, but if I am in Egypt just trying to survive and this dude figures out she's my wife, I'm a dead man. How do you, how do you make those things agree? That God has promised you these things and that you're going to die in Egypt. Those things disagree with each other. How often do we walk in a way that disagrees with what God has already clearly revealed about his plans for us? It's, it's really hard not to walk that way. If we're just being real, it's really hard not to walk in this exact kind of way. So, listen, this isn't technically a total lie. Later on in Genesis chapter 20, and, and you can look if you want, but uh, I'm going to keep moving. Later on in Genesis chapter 20, you see uh, Abram talking to another person. He's tried to deceive in this way, another king to save his life. And he says, actually, she is my half-sister. So they had the same father, but not the same mother, which, you know, this was like 4,000 years ago, so give him a break. So this is his, actually technically is his half-sister, which makes it exactly a half-truth that he's dealing in, right? Like, okay, look, 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 we got to go to Egypt. We're going to die if we don't get to Egypt. What can we do? I know that they're going to kill me if they know she's my wife. She is also my sister. And in a patriarchal society, 
Wherever the presence of the father is absent, the presence of the brother takes precedence. And now he has the legal right to make decisions about his sister, including who she can marry. So if they enter into Egypt and he's her brother, which technically he is her half-brother, we can just forget that he's her husband and die I'm her brother. Now, if anybody wants to marry her, because look how beautiful she is, he can be like, well, look, I'm the brother. I'll make the decision. Let's start a conversation about what it would look like for you to marry my sister. Drag your feet. Let's get out of Egypt. We got our food. All right? That's the plan. That's what's going on with Abram here. He wants to just delay, delay, delay. I'm her brother. I'll decide. Look, we got a lot of guys who want to marry my sister. I got to take time to meet with them all. You're number 37 on the list. It's going to be like six months. Just chill. Five and a half months later, they're back in Canaan with all their supplies. This is what's going on. He's dealing in half-truth, concocting a plan to survive so that he can endure this famine and endure Egypt and eventually realize God's plan for him. Where is the integrity in this? Where is the faith that God and his plans are not threatened by the whole truth? Where is the faith? 2,000 years after Abram walked the earth, Jesus came into the world and he taught very clearly, explicitly, that God is not nearly as interested in the outward appearances as he is what's in the heart. We know that this is, this is why Jesus said, if a, if a man even looks on a woman with impure thoughts, it's adultery in his heart. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in your heart. What Jesus was driving at was God is looking at the heart always at the motives, not just at the results. So for Abram to find a way of surviving and dealing in half-truth, not totally lying, but finding a really smart way to survive and then making it back to Canaan so that he can continue to realize God's promises, God is not just going, well, you know what? It all worked out. There he is. He's in Canaan and he's alive so I can still make him a great nation. Well, kudos, Abram. Instead, God's looking at the heart and this is wickedness. This is wickedness. So this raises some questions for us. We know we all face trials. Many of them threaten our pride. They threaten our plans. Sometimes they threaten our lives, these trials that we face. During those trials, we have opportunities, just the way Abram had an opportunity here through the famine, to seek God and look to him only for our satisfaction, for our provision, for our deliverance, to look to God only. This is the opportunity that every trial provides. Now, as a disciple of Christ, which you could say Abram was in a kind of precursory sense, he was looking forward to Christ, he was longing for that greater city, that greater kingdom, particularly for us as disciples of Christ, knowing that the purpose of our whole life is to glorify God. You know that, right? 
This is unequivocally the purpose of your entire life. There's, there's no other purpose for which God created you that supersedes that purpose. You were created for God's glory. Now that makes some demands on your time, your energy, your thoughts, your passions. It means that if they're not geared towards the glory of God, then they're falling short. And everything that's not done for God's glory will just end up being burned up in a heap of self-righteousness. We are designed for God's glory. So then, as a disciple of Christ who knows the purpose of his or her life is to glorify God, ask yourself this question. When given the choice to walk by faith or walk by fear, what is your goal? What is your goal? I'm going to just say it again to help you really think. And I'm going to ask you to answer the question, if not out loud, internally at least. When given the choice to walk by faith or walk by fear, what is your goal? Now, any disciple of Christ who understands his life or her life is about God's glory, you will never answer that question with, of course, my goal is to walk by fear. You will always answer that question with my goal is to walk by faith. I don't want to stumble the way Abram stumbled. I don't want to be over here calculating plans to, to preserve my own life, even in a sinful way to somehow re realize some promise of God, this twisted path towards the will of God being accomplished in my life. I know that it's always, always the right thing for me to walk by faith. And that's my goal. Now, what if walking by faith threatens your plans? Same answer? Same answer? Even if walking by faith threatens my plans, it is my goal to walk by faith. What if walking by faith threatens your income? Same answer? Even if it threatens my income, my goal is to walk by faith, not by fear. What if, bear with me, what if it threatens your security, your family's security? What if it threatens your very life? Same answer? Is your goal still to walk by faith, not by fear? If it is, then you know you are signing at the bottom of a blank contract and expecting God to fill it in. Whatever he does, whatever he says, whatever he causes, whatever he allows, whatever you're forced to endure because you're walking by faith and not trying to circumnavigate it by fear, but walk straight through the trial that God has brought into your life, if you're signing up to do it by faith, then you know you're signing up for some scary stuff. Some stuff that will be hard to endure, maybe physically, certainly emotionally, spiritually. You'll wonder where is God sometimes. You'll wonder why things are taking so long to unfold. But if you're signed up with the same answer, 
when it's easy to say, and there's no qualifiers on it, there's nothing like that, just what is your goal? Do you want to be a fearful person or a faithful person? We all say, I want to be a faithful person. But then to say, what about when it's scary? What about when it's dangerous? What about when it costs you a lot? Maybe everything. Does the answer stay the same? For Abram, he, fi- he failed, he faltered, he stumbled. We learn from this failure. We learn from his stumbling block. What was it that caused him in that moment to lose sight of his goal of walking by faith, of trusting God, of continuing in belief? It was fear of losing his life. So he devised a plan. This is a test. I know when I say that everybody in the room is like, of the emergency broadcasting system, right? You know that went through your mind. This, what, what Abram is enduring here is a test. What you are enduring is a test. Every difficult thing, every trial, every, every season of suffering, it's a test. A test of your faith. Now, let's define testing in the scriptures. When the scriptures speak about testing, you have to get out of your mind the way we use the word test. Because we think quiz, we think exam, midterm, this kind of stuff. Like, test my knowledge. And if I do well enough, I pass. If I don't do well enough, I fail. So, like, if you go through... Uh, high school and you make it to your senior year and you take some tests and they're like, look, you didn't do well enough. You can't graduate. Then you failed the test, right? But that's not what we're talking about here when the Bible speaks of testing. And that's not what was happening to Abram. This test presented to him to see if he would still belong to God, if God would still fulfill his promises, if he would still be made into a great nation. That's not the kind of test that's happening. When the Bible speaks of testing, it's talking about refining, strengthening, purifying. So when things get complicated and they're scary for Abram because he stepped out of God's will, that very same thing can happen to us. We can step out of God's will for us and the way that we live. We can uh, try to get around suffering or around trials by doing some sketchy stuff. But remember, when we face trials, when we face testing, refining, purifying work, whether we're 100% faithful or 100% faithless or anywhere in the middle, there is still the potential for things to feel out of control. You just have to know that. I'm being really real with you here because, uh, to be honest, there are a lot of really famous pastors, preachers, teachers who hold Bibles in their hands and tell you things that contradict what the Bible says. And it's more like, if you're 100% faithful, it'll go really well for you. God will just straighten your path and smooth your path and you'll have plenty of money to pay your bills and all these things will fall into place and all your dreams will come true, like if you voted for Pedro. But the truth is, 
Even if you're 100% faithful, it can still feel wildly out of control. Kind of like Abram, living through a famine, sojourning in Egypt, trying to patch things together and make sense of it. Now, listen to this. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. No, sorry, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, there's that word, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can see all the trials that you go through are meant to refine, purify, test your faith. The way they put gold through a fire and it burns off all the dross and the impurities and when it comes out of the fire and if it goes more fire and more fire and more fire, it becomes more and more pure so that all that's left is pure gold. Now even that pure gold can perish, but your faith never will. Your faith is tested, refined, purified by the trials. You see that Peter doesn't give any other context for how your faith is refined. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, but here's what you know they're producing. A refined, pure, strong faith. Abram didn't have a full understanding of the gospel but we do. So we can view his experience through this gospel lens and we can have the comfort of knowing Christ has lived for us, died for us, risen for us, ascended for us. He's even now interceding for us by the power of his spirit inside of us that we would be able to continually walk by faith, not by fear, no matter the cost. Because that's the goal. If you just try to answer the question, do I want to walk by faith or I want to walk by fear? Everybody says, I want to walk by faith. But we need to ask that question the way the Bible asks that question. The way the Bible presents what it looks like to walk by faith, which includes always necessarily trials. Trials that refine that burn off the impurities. That hurts. That's scary. Abram didn't have this perspective, but we did. This is gospel truth. This is gospel truth. Now let's pick it back up at verse 17. We know that Pharaoh has heard about Sarai, that she's very beautiful. She was presented to him. Wow, she is really beautiful. I want her bring her inside. She's not married. So now she becomes part basically of his harem, which I know could introduce a question here like, whoa, did stuff happen like in Pharaoh's room that the Bible doesn't get into, but just kind of implies? The possibility could be there, except imagine 4,000 years ago in a harem of wives and concubines, there was always a process that women had to go through that could literally take months and months before they got any real quality time with Pharaoh or with fill-in-the-blank king. So the, the, real, 
the real possibility and, and reality here is that she came in and in a short amount of time, she was impressive and she became part of the group of wives, but that she was probably kind of living on the periphery of Pharaoh's household until the rest of the story unfolds. Pharaoh is very grateful to Abram for uh, relinquishing his sister. And so he blesses him with all of these things, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, which now you know you're really getting ritzy when you talk about female donkeys and camels. This was just at the very beginning of camels being domesticated for service. Only the richest people had them. Female donkeys were much easier to ride. They were much more submissive. So you're talking about amazing riches here that Abram has been given. But, verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Sarai wasn't afflicted, just Pharaoh's household. And that's why it was so obvious that it was about Sarai. Everybody here, most likely in the the way the Hebrew constructs this, and when you look at other texts, the plague here is probably like boils on the skin, some kind of affliction of their body. So everybody in the household is afflicted with this disgusting kind of sickness. Everybody except the new girl. What's up, new girl? Do you want to fill in the blanks here or anything like that? And I guess she broke under interrogation. Okay, look. What's probably going on here is that I'm actually Abram's wife. So Pharaoh's obviously upset about this. Pharaoh, verse 18, called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now listen to this. This is actually kind of funny to me. In the English, it's translated, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. But in the Hebrew, there's only four words there. And here's what it says. Here, wife, take, go. That's all he said. In the Hebrew, it's very succinct. I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm not even really interested in hearing the answers to my questions. I just want you to get out of here with, my, with your wife so that this skin condition can be gone and I can get back to normal because I got plenty of wives. Here, take, wife, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. In other words, they were deported. They were not asked to leave. They were deported and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So keep the stuff. That's fine. Just get out. Which is, this is all kind of a foreshadowing of later interactions with God's people and Pharaoh and plagues and leaving with lots of stuff, right? It's happening a little bit smaller scale here, but the result is the same. And when we talk about the result, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at a person set apart by God for God's glory, stumbling, finding himself in a really hairy situation where he disobeyed God, but now he's depending on God to deliver him. And God does it. Now, does God deliver him by adding these plagues to Pharaoh's house, uh, ejecting Sarai from the harem, sending uh, Abram out, deported from the city with all these possessions to help him in the promised land. Does God do all this because he was like, good job, Abram? Because Abram nailed it? Because he was faithful? Because he passed what we would call a test? No. Abram was a complete failure in every part of this story. 
stumbling and lying and tricking and deceiving and putting his wife in that real compromising position. Just say you're my sister. It'll be fine. And now she's someone else's wife. Abram completely failed. Now, here's where we find ourselves in the text. People set apart for God's glory as his children who are failing miserably. Every day, right? Amen? Failing, stumbling, falling over yourself. I I know that I am my own worst enemy when it comes to a life of righteousness. So then what's left to say, why would God deliver him? If he's a complete miserable failure and he's forgotten God and he's acting in a faithless way, not a faithful way, but he's being driven by his fear to make all of his plans, arrange all of his actions, why would God deliver him? Why not just start over with someone else? Here's why. Because God's faithful to himself. His own word, his own covenant, his own promises. He had set his mind to do a thing through Abram and he was unwilling to let Abram derail it. Do you honestly think that God would set apart you for his glory through faith in Christ as an act of grace and then that you would be able to sin and change God's mind? Honestly. If that was how it was, what kind of God are you even seeking to serve? Someone who can so easily be swayed? Oh man, I didn't realize you were going to sin. That's weird because your word says that I'm going to all the time. Do we honestly think that God's plans for us, his kingdom will be derailed because of our sin? You have to eradicate that line of thinking from your belief system. I know that nobody would ever say, look, write down for me your theology of holiness, of personal holiness. And you would say, well, I believe that God has a lot of plans for me, but that if I sin, he will then reject me and forget his plans. I know you would never write that down, but how do you think and live Do you make your plans as if all of God's promises are going to be true no matter what? Do you make your plans around following God in faith no matter what the cost? Or do you have plan C, plan D, plan F, plan Z12 just in case things get weird? This is the lowest, for me, me, as I think through this text and I put myself in the proper place in this text of a, a person who fails all the time and is looking God to deliver me from my own mess for his sake. It's the lowest point of my thought here. But then... As God always so graciously does, he lifts up our faces and he gives us words that shore up our understanding of his commitment to his own name through us. So I want to ask you to turn to Hebrews 11. And it's not something that's like we're going to try to make it fit Genesis chapter 12. It's speaking directly towards Genesis chapter 12. So look at Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. 
You're going to go New Testament. You're going to go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to go past a bunch of letters. And, um, and you're going to find Hebrews. Pretty big book. If you see uh, Peter or James, you've gone just a little too far. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, which is later his name was changed, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, you read Genesis, and you see Abraham doubting God's promise, and you see Sarah literally laughing at God's promise to make her pregnant and give her an heir, and you see Abram going into Egypt to survive the famine and to survive Pharaoh, lying and concocting plans for his own self-preservation and forgetting God, and what does God remember in the annals of history. He remembers their faith, brothers and sisters. He remembers their faith. They were counted righteous because of their faith. That is gospel truth. You will fail, you will fail, 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 you will fail. And God will remember your faith. To be set apart for God does not depend on your own works of righteousness. It depends on God. It depends on his grace. It depends on faith. Faith will falter, but God's faithfulness will not. We serve a God who is willing to watch Abram stumble through Canaan, stumble through Egypt, stumble back into Canaan, stumble through the fulfillment of the promises, and always perpetually maintain his faithfulness to Abram and to his wife, Sarah. This is a demonstration of the faithfulness of God. It's not just a demonstration of God's people doing bad stuff. What we want to do here is more than just see if Abram messed up, then you can mess up. And don't worry, it's not a big deal. That's not what we're doing. It's a huge deal. We never want to sin. We never want to lose faith. We never want to look to our own devices to try to help God accomplish his purposes. Never, never. 
It's never okay, never tolerable. But we know, as John says, don't sin, but when you do, know that if you confess your sins to God, he will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will be faithful and just. This is the God that we serve. He's better. He's just better than we even know. He's more patient and forgiving and gracious than we could ever imagine. The Bible says things about God that are almost hard to come to grips with, not because they seem too far-fetched, like too fanciful, but because they seem too good to be true. We want to diminish what the Bible says about God, his love for us, his care for us, his faithfulness to us, because we think, not for me. Not for me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't feel like that. He wouldn't make those kinds of promises. For me, I'm stupid. I'm, I'm so unholy. I feel like I live more than half of my life as if I don't believe God. The balance is off. He wouldn't feel that way about me, but it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. So every time we, we come through this kind of lesson where we're learning theology about God, about ourselves, what does God's word say? What's the truth of it? And then just stamping that in ink and not returning from that, but just staking our lives on the truth of it. If that's true, then the only sane thing for me to do is arrange my life around the truth of it, right? It's the only sane thing to do. So then here's what we have to do from this point moving forward. We have to begin to evaluate our lives. Where is it that I believe my failures will talk God out of his promises? Where is that occurring in my heart? And let, let me point you in some directions. It's most likely going to be in some part of your heart that's caught up in some habitual sin. Some habitual sin that you just haven't hated enough to repent of. You still enjoy it enough to keep it. You still don't believe God's powerful enough to deliver you from it. And to be honest, you just like it. It feels good. It's probably going to be where you look at that part of your life when you're more clear-headed, when you're in the word, when you're spending a time in prayer and the spirit is moving you and, and pulling back the curtains so that you look deeply into your own heart and that self-examination, you're going to see that part of your life and you're going to think, how can it be that God loves me? How can it be that I have not backpedaled into sin so far that God accomplishing his purposes is just too far off? Now, now that's one possibility. Here's another possibility. I'm just trying to help you examine your own heart and see where is it that you could be failing to believe the truth and arrange your life around it. It could be that someone has sinned against you in such a deep painful way that you think you are too damaged to be redeemed. That this person has somehow overcome God's love for you, God's plans for you, his ability to care for you, that you are now damaged goods laying on a shelf in God's basement. And if he has time for a real serious project, he might think about getting down there to deal with messed up you. 
But for now, you're just too much to deal with. You're just too far gone. The truth that we're arranging our lives around is unapologetically that God has plans for his people that his people cannot derail. That Satan cannot derail. That ungodly people cannot derail. That circumstances cannot derail. Abram was in, imagine, in Egypt. His wife is now someone else's wife. Not just some guy with big muscles. A guy who's ruling a kingdom has taken his wife into his home to be his wife. His whole plan has backfired. You can imagine how scared, how confused, how bewildered Abram is in this moment. And what does God do? Just delivers him. Just delivers him, humiliates him, hurts his feelings, talks him out of it moves on other people's lives and on other people's hearts to convince them, you just need to move on from this guy. He's mine. Just move on. Now, did it hurt any less? No. You flip over a few chapters, what do you see happen? Abram does the same exact thing again. This time, instead of Pharaoh, it's Abimelech. And what does God do? He intervenes again. He delivers him out of his own mess for his own purposes. God's just better than us, wiser than us, more powerful than us, more committed than us, holier than us, more powerful, better, greater. He cannot be stopped. Do you understand that? Do you understand that God cannot be stopped? The most powerful man with skin was no match. I mean, God made quick work of him. Quick work. God cannot be stopped. So then as you're going home and as you're laying in bed talking about it or praying about it, staring at the ceiling and seeking God about how to arrange your life around the truth of the gospel, these magnificent claims that God makes about his love for you and his plans for you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Christ has overcome the world. Do not let your heart deceive you. It doesn't know better than God. See the plain truth of the scripture and devote your life to it. And you will not come to the end of your life and regret that you walked by faith. Whatever the cost was, even if you met the end of your life because you walked by faith, you will be glad you did because the spirit inside of you will testify that it was an act of righteousness that pleased God. I'll end with this. Peter, in the same letter that we read from earlier, said about suffering, if someone suffers because they sinned, it's of no use at all. But if someone suffers for righteousness' sake, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God.
God sees that. He values that. Walking by faith will always turn out better in the end than walking by fear. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.